The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today, uh, the topic at hand is what the Bible says about abortion. Again, another very sensitive topic. I wanted you to know today, as we look at what the Bible says about abortion, we're not doing this from a political point of view. Some would say that the church isn't allowed to talk about abortion. Some pastors actually believe that the topic of abortion from the pulpit is off limits because it is a political issue. That's what they would say. And that is not true because we believe that the Bible is sufficient and really deals with every topic in life. That's called the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible addresses everything in life that is pertinent uh, to how we live our life day to day even the difficult issues in life, and abortion is no exception. Some would say, well, the word abortion is not in the Bible. Well, the English word abortion is not in the Bible, but the, the concept of abortion and all relevant matters are totally in the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation because when you're dealing with the issue of abortion, you're really dealing with the bigger umbrella topic of the sanctity of life and the ultimate questions of what is life? When does life begin? How is life defined? Where did life come from? What is God's view of life? And on and on. So many implications. So definitely uh, the abortion issue is in Scripture. God has a say on the topic. As a matter of fact, God has the final say on the topic of abortion. So that was the first thing I wanted to say is the Bible is sufficient to deal with all of these issues. The second note I wanted to make before we start was more of a personal one. And that is because abortion is such a sensitive topic an emotional one, and especially if any of you have ever been involved in an abortion, whether you had friends who were, you knew someone that was contemplating it, maybe someone here in this church body actually had an abortion at one time in their life. Um, it's all around us, so that doesn't surprise me at all, and I, I understand that. Nevertheless, we still have to see what Scripture has to say about it because we want our minds to be thinking and dwelling on truth. That's Philippians 4. That's a command for every Christian. It's an imperative where God commands every Christian, think on things that are true. And literally, it's meditate on things that are true. Ruminate. Be dominated in your thinking by the truth that God has revealed. And on the issue of abortion and the sanctity of life, a Christian needs to have a biblical worldview by which they view the topic of abortion in all related manners. And... I'm not so naive to think that every Christian has a fully orbed biblical worldview on all topics, let alone the topic of abortion, because I've met Christians, talked to Christians, was even friends with certain Christians who had a different view of abortion than I did. I think of one person in particular, conversation about six years ago or so, and talking with this dear believer, relatively new believer, probably in their mid-twenties and topic came up and they believed in abortion. And I said, well, that's, that's not right. Abortion is wrong. And they were a little startled. Well, why do you say that? And then I began to explain to them and, and I asked them in return, why do, you, why do you believe abortion is okay? That's, that's going against what I think the Bible says. And they just admitted ignorance. Wow. I, I, and they said their testimony was they grew up in an unbelieving home. They never were taught the Bible. Actually, it was a very secular humanistic home, believed in evolution, also was a very liberal home, politically speaking, and that's how they were raised. Then they went off to a liberal, secular college uh, here in the Bay Area, 
and their four years of education, they were just inundated with evolution, humanism, atheism, feminism, and it was ingrained in the brain. She thought, she thought that everybody believed abortion was okay and a, and a right. So she was quite shocked and surprised when I said, well, there's actually an alternative view. And within 15 minutes, I gave her biblical principles and she changed her mind 180 degrees just like that. It was a beautiful thing. She was just submissive to Scripture. I want, I want to submit and know biblical truth. Please teach me. Please tell me. I'll never forget that conversation. That was a, a teachable, soft-hearted believer who was honest who had been misinformed for 25 years of their life, and when they were confronted with the truth of the Word of God, it literally transformed her, starting from the inside out, starting with how she thinks and her worldview. I'll never forget that. That is the power of the Word of God and the power of the truth, and hence our need to think and dwell on the truth. So follow me as we go through different Scriptures on this topic, and we'll follow that outline. Six points that I want to bring with you today, just once again to be parameters by which we guard our thinking on this very sensitive and all-important topic because so much is at stake. And we'll look at those six points that are biblically driven before we do, by way of introduction. Uh, I have a quote or two, starting with this one. The care of human life and happiness, the care of human life, and happiness, and not their destruction, is the first and only legitimate object of good government. It's powerful. The care of human life and not its destruction is the first and only legitimate object of good government. So said Thomas Jefferson. I will prescribe regimens for the good of my patients according to my ability and my judgment and never do harm to anyone. I will not give a lethal drug to anyone if I am asked, nor will I advise such a plan. And similarly, similarly I will not give a woman a pessary to cause an abortion. That was the Hippocratic Oath written in around 400 B.C. That at one time, if you wanted to be a surgeon or a medical in the medical profession, you had to take that oath. A commitment to preserve life in the womb. You don't have to do that today. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men, which means all people, all humans, are created equal. That they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That's our Declaration of Independence. Government exists to preserve life. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life. Wow. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life without due process of law. 
nor deny to any person, to any person within its jurisdiction, the equal protection of the laws. Our very own laws of the land were made and designed to preserve and protect life. Especially the most vulnerable life of all. Those who can't protect themselves. That's the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. And people want to talk about constitutional rights. In God's hands is the life of every creature. In God's hands is the life of every creature, every creature, and the breath of all mankind. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life, said Job. 2000 B.C. So it's clear the foundation of our very country, the authoritative declaration that God has made through His living Word, the Scriptures, life is sacred, life is precious, and government was instituted to protect such life. Let's go ahead and look at these six points that I want to share from Scripture. and We'll be flipping to different passages. But point number one there is that all human life is sacred. All human life is sacred. And begins at conception. Boy, this is the foundation of everything. This is the foundation of everything. All human life is sacred. Genesis 1.26. If you have your Bible there. Beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Created everything. Moving through creation day by day throughout the creation week. And He reaches a crescendo with the greatest of His creation, which is humanity. Male and female made in His image. The apex of His creation, the glory of His creation is the human race with the first two people, Adam and Eve, who were real people. They are our ancestors. They are history. We came from their loins. Here's what God had to say about the sanctioning of the dignity by which He created the first two humans. Verse 26 of Genesis 1 says, Then God said, Let us... The Trinity is talking to itself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us, God said, inter-Trinitarian conversation, let us, the triune God of the universe, make man or humanity in our own image. God never said that about animals, rocks, trees, or anything else. He didn't make anything else in His image save humanity, man and woman. Every man and woman was made in God's image to reflect Him perfectly to a certain degree. We bear the image of God. Let us make humanity. Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. What is He talking about primarily? Primarily, God first and foremost is a person. That's the umbrella term because under that personhood of God includes all of His personal attributes. And that's what it means. When it says that God was going to make humans in His own image, it means that He was going to make them persons. And all the traits included therein. Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, over everything in the earth. Verse 27, So God created man. He created humanity in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. See, it's equal. Men and women are equal before God in terms of their value, dignity, created worth, made in the very image of God. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, every human being is, is sacred, made in the image of God. Every human life is precious and sacred for that very reason. That's what God decreed. That was the reality that God declared to us. That has not changed. Human beings are not the hapless byproduct of 
chance and evolution. Human beings were created by divine intervention on behalf of the Creator who made human beings in His image as persons. And as a result, every human being is sacred. Uh, this is reiterated once again. God destroyed the world in a flood. And then in Genesis chapter 9, there were eight people left. And when they got off the ark, here's what God said. Okay, Noah, here's, we're starting all over again. But you got eight people. It was Noah and Mrs. Noah and their eight children. Or seven, what was it, six children? Sons and their wives. And God gave, He reiterated this decree. So when they got off the ark, here's what God said. Okay, there's only eight of you. And we need to preserve the human life because human life is sacred. And so God told Noah, Surely I, will, surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will re- require the life of men. Whoever, shed, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. He was telling and reiterating to Noah, you, no human being has the right to murder another human being. And if you murder another human being, you deserve to be put to death by the government that God has instituted. That's capital punishment. God instituted that to protect and preserve human life, which was made in His image. And he reiterates this to God. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Because in the image of God, God made humanity. Every human life is sacred, created by God. And only God, as the Creator and Judge, can determine when a life should cease to exist. Verse 7, And as for you, Noah, and your wifey, Mrs. Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Enjoy your marriage. Fill the earth. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Do you know God has never rescinded that decree to humanity? There's plenty of room still on planet earth to populate. That's God's decree. It's a good one. We'll see that later. But all human life is sacred based on this decree. Now go to the New Testament, James chapter 3. James was the literal brother of Jesus Christ, the half-brother of Jesus And in James chapter 3, he's addressing Christians who struggled with sin. And one of the areas where we struggle is with our mouth and with our words. And James says, boy, it's, you know, your tongue, so it's a vicious thing. It's, all, it's impossible to always perfectly tame the tongue. You're going to struggle with that all your days. For we all stumble in many ways. Uh, verse 2. If anyone does not stumble on what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths, verse 3, so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. A horse can be controlled, that huge thing that weighs hundreds of pounds, just by its mouth. Not so with a human being. Uh, Verse 4, Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, whoever... Wherever the inclination of the pilot desires, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire as the tongue. Our words, powerful and dangerous. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell itself. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed. Human beings have the ability to tame just about every animal there is. Just think about it. We can, we can tame lions, for goodness sake, and put our head in there, in his mouth. Well, I've seen it done. So he's saying human beings can, can train elephants to do their bidding. Although I don't think you can train a kitty cat. But anyway, uh, that would be the exception. Cats don't listen to anybody. Um, 
But for the most part, man can control these other beasts and wild animals, but he can't tame one wild beast. That's your own mouth. Applies to all of us. Verse 8. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a relentless evil full of deadly poison. Have you ever said anything you regret? All the time. Verse 9. With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father. He's talking to Christians here. That's what we're doing right now. Singing to God. Praise you, God. How much longer before we're doing sin with our mouth? And that's what he talks about. Verse 9. With our tongue we bless the Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Every human being is made in God's image. Therefore, do not curse any man. Verse 10, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, fellow believers, these things should not be. But the point is, James refers to this issue that every human being is made in God's image and therefore is sacred and is worthy of basic dignity and respect as a human being even if they're an unbeliever or even if they're in the wrong. There's still inherent dignity that they have by being made in the image of God. Going back to that point number one, all human life is sacred and precious. Sacred and, and, and life begins at conception. In 1973, in January, when the Supreme Court of the United States, in a vote of seven to two, upheld abortion, the lead position was written by Judge Blackman, Harry Blackman. And in there, he wrote and said, we refuse to deal with the issue and answer the question of when life begins when we made this decision. That's what he wrote. It's on record. Unbelievable. That is the most important question they should have looked at and decided when they made their decision. They just categorically rejected it. Don't confuse me with the facts. Life begins at conception. This is categorically true. This is where people try to get off on a debate and give scientific and biological reasons. Don't let them do that. Scripture is clear that life begins at conception. Sam read earlier in Psalm 139, just a beautiful psalm, uh, where the psalmist is reflecting on his relationship with God. And his relationship with God actually began in the womb as it says that he was fearfully and wonderfully crafted and made by a designer and intentionally by Almighty God Himself. Human life in the womb is sacred. The baby in the womb is a person. That is the clear position of Scripture. Jeremiah 1.5, if you have your Old Testament there, this isn't just an Old Testament truth. It's also an Old Testament and a New Testament truth, but we're going to see that. So if you go to the prophets, uh, the major prophets kind of in the middle of your Bible there, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, had an extensive ministry used by God in amazing ways. And here's what God says to Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, starting at verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah. God spoke to me, Jeremiah said. And here's what God said to me, said Jeremiah. Verse 5, God said, before I formed you in the womb, there it is. A baby in the womb was formed by God, created by God. Not a byproduct of hapless evolution. Created intentionally by the Creator. Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Look at that. By the way, the word there in verse 5 for know is the same word used in the Hebrew to love someone. It speaks of intimate relationship. Not just, oh, I knew you existed. It was, I actually knew you intimately because I am God. 
And I formed you and I formed you intentionally and I formed you with a purpose and I created you. And that creation began in the womb. And my plans for you began in the womb. And even before that, really, in the eternal mind of God, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and before you were born, I consecrated you. Consecrated to be a prophet while yet in the womb. Jeremiah was a person in the womb. I've appointed you as a prophet to the nations. The baby in the womb is a person. Life begins at conception. Let's look at Psalm 51, verse 5. This is probably the most important point. This is the rock bed issue. And God is definitive. God is clear. In Psalm 51, David is confessing his sin for being a sinner. He was guilty of lying. He was for a year of a cover-up. He was guilty of orchestrating a murder of an innocent man in Uriah. He was guilty of adultery and lusting. And finally got convicted after about a year of wallowing in his guilt till the light finally went on. And he's, this, So Psalm 51 is a confession. God, forgive me for being a sinner. I am a sinner. I sin against you. And then he goes on in verse 5 to say, and it, my sins didn't begin in this life. And my sins didn't begin when I first committed a sin in this life. And my sin didn't begin in what I did a year ago when I committed adultery and tried to cover it up. My sin didn't begin then. My sin began before that. And that's his argument in verse 5. Behold, Lo, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was literally in the Hebrew. I was given birth by my mother in sin. In other words, I was a sinner at birth. That's what it says in the Hebrew. It even, but he even goes beyond that in the second part of verse 5 in a parallel passage. He says, and in sin, actually, my mother conceived me. In other words, he inherited a sin nature at conception. That's literally what it says. Only a person can have a sin nature. And David admitted under the inspiration of God, that he had a sin nature. He was a person. He's calling himself me using personal pronouns when he was in the womb and even at the point of conception. Scripture is clear. All human life is sacred. It begins at conception. Let's go to the New Testament. It's some amazing passages starting in Luke chapter 1. If you've got a pen or a pencil, you might want to circle some words or maybe take some, some notes to highlight this in your Bible so you have it for future reference. Uh, because it's very specific, it is very detailed. In Luke chapter 1 is the account. It begins with Zechariah and Elizabeth who are called by God for specific ministry. Godly people, righteous before God, had faith in Him. Uh, Luke chapter... Oops, let me get there. So Zacharias was the high priest of the year, had the privilege of going into the temple at certain feast days to do to lead the people in worship and sacrifice. And starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias. And at the end of the verse, it says his wife was Elizabeth. Verse 6, they were both righteous. Go down to verse 15. By the way, they were very old and advanced in age, and Elizabeth had never had a child. She was barren in verse 7. Her womb had been closed. She wanted a child, never had one. Yet... Then at verse 15, look at this. God promises uh, Zacharias that his wife, Elizabeth, will, will bring forth a child. It's going to be a son, as a matter of fact, and he's going to be a prophet. His name will be John at the end of verse 13. And in describing what John the Baptist will be like before he's even born, verse 15 says, For he, John the Baptist, will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He, By the way, notice all the personal pronouns. He, he, he hadn't even been born yet. Not a fetus. Not a zygote, not an embryo, not a massive glob of cells. 
He. He's got a name. His name is John. We named some of our children while they're still in the womb. Prayed for them, prayed with them, listened to them, talked to them, gave them orders. Even beforehand. Just trying to get a head start. They were persons and that's how we considered them as persons. So that's the same perspective from the Bible. He will be great. John the Baptist will. No wine. Get this. The middle of verse 15. John the Baptist, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Unbelievable. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in the womb. Only a person can be filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby in the womb is a person. Look at verse 36 of the same chapter. So, Elizabeth is going to be blessed by God and become pregnant. Verse 36, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, get this, has also conceived... Okay, conception. Not conceived a zygote or conceived a fetus or conceived an embryo or conceived a glob of cells. Verse 36, Elizabeth has conceived a son. There it is. The, the baby is considered a son at the point of conception from a biblical point of view. And the word used there for son is huios. It is the normal word all throughout the New Testament, meaning a son, a boy, a male, a child, an offspring that is a human before God. A conception called by God a son. Elizabeth has conceived a son. Look at the parallel passage. Go on to verse 57. Then it came time after conception, nine months later, and at the time... Uh, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. Nine months later. And she brought forth a son. Same word, we asked. She conceived a son and brought forth a son. Born as a baby, born as a person, conceived as a baby, conceived as a person. So the Bible sees the continuum consistent from the time of conception till the time of birth and even the entire time in the womb. A son that's the declaration of Scripture. Look at verse 41 of the same chapter there. It came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting. So Elizabeth uh, conceived a son, then she went and she was six months pregnant, and then she met Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary wasn't pregnant yet. And then when Mary greeted Elizabeth, this is what happened, verse 41. It came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby inside of six months in the womb, the baby John the Baptist, the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb. The ba- Notice it is called a baby. The Greek word is brephos and it means baby. A baby is a baby is a baby is a person. Not a fetus. The baby leaped. That's God's point of view. That is God's perspective. The baby. Okay, here's, this is very important. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 12. This is the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus is born already. He's already been born. He's already been called a child many times in the beginning of chapter 2. And then in verse 12, talking about the baby Jesus who had already been born. Uh, and this will be a sign for you. Or it goes on to describe Jesus having been born, calls him a child. But uh, the prophecy, and this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. So Jesus has already been born and he's called a baby. And the Greek word is brephos. And that is the exact same word brephos that is used in Luke 1.41, talking about John the Baptist while still in the womb of Elizabeth. A baby is a baby in the womb from God's point of view. A son, a baby, a male, a Hebrew child, precious, life, made in the image of God, sacred, valuable to God. The most important point. Finally, look at one more verse. This is just a beautiful expression. Luke chapter 2, verse 5, starting at verse 1. Now it came about in those days uh, the decree of Caesar Augustus. 
then there was the registration in verse 3. And then in verse 4 it says, Joseph went, also went up to register from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Mary was pregnant, verse 5, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was, here's the beautiful phrase, Mary was with child, says the NASB, which is the most specific and exact translation of the Greek word. Some translations say pregnant. That is not good. That's not graphic enough. It is not specific enough. The Greek word is specific. It means with child. With a human made in God's image. What a beautiful expression. With child. That's the moniker used all throughout the Old Testament. Really, someone with child. With child. The baby in the womb is a person. That's the biblical point of view. Don't be fooled by the secular world, the unbelieving world, and the lie trying to call the child, the baby, the girl in the womb that has life, that's made in God's image, that is valuable, that is precious, that is sacred. This is to be protected by humanity and the government. And they try to dehumanize it and depersonalize it by changing the entire vocabulary. Whether making it medical terminology only that is totally sterile or inventing terminology and phrases to dehumanize baby in the womb using things like ovum, fetus, embryo, glob, mass of cells, it, the mass. These are terms they use. That's not a biblical point of view. So point number one is probably one of the most important points in all of this to understand. Let's go on to point number two. God commanded procreation and He opens the womb. This is practical in terms of informing our worldview just by why we have babies. Because some of the arguments used by those who want to push abortion, one of their arguments is, well, we need abortion because we have so many unwanted pregnancies. Did you know from a biblical point of view there is no such thing as an unwanted pregnancy? Because if you ask him, what do you mean by an unwanted pregnancy? If it was theoretically possible to talk to that little baby and the woman, ask them if they wanted to be terminated and if they felt unwanted and didn't want to live this life, they'd probably say, no, I want to live. People have survived abortions. People have survived horrible situations. People have survived being the byproduct of rape and incest and adultery. Have come to Christ and and thank God that He preserved their life. There are no unwanted pregnancies. Well, you might say, well, the byproduct of rape is unwanted. Or maybe incest. That was the number one argument. One of the the main arguments they used in the 70s to try to get this law passed. Well, we, we absolutely need abortion for rape and incest. I'm thinking, well... If we had to uh, abort and kill every baby that was a result of incest, then nobody would be saved and everybody would go to hell. Literally. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. You have, you have a case of incest. And according to that argument, then that baby should have been terminated, killed. Problem is, Genesis, uh, Matthew chapter 1 says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So this is the genealogy of the descent, the lineal descent, physical genealogy of Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, Messiah, God-man. Verse 2, Jesus is a descendant of David and Abraham, and then it picks up the genealogy with Abraham. Verse 2, to Abraham, the patriarch, out of the loins which would come the Messiah, to Abraham was born Isaac, and and the one born to Isaac was Jacob, and to Jacob was born Judah and his brothers. Verse 3, and to Judah was born Perez and Zerah. Now, you need to key on Perez. So Judah had a son. Judah had many sons. One son was named Perez. 
Perez was the son of Judah the dad, and Tamar was his mother. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. The fact that Judah and Tamar got together physically was incest. So Judah and Tamar got together, had a son named Perez. God preserved Perez's life. And it says, verse 3, Perez, to Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron Ram, to Ram Aminadab, to Aminadab, and it goes on to Salmon. Verse 5, and to Salmon was born Boaz, to Boaz oh, by Rahab, a prostitute, was born Boaz, was born uh, Obed by Ruth. Ruth was uh, interracial marriage, which some people are against. And to Ruth was born Jesse, and to Jesse was born David, and to David uh, was born Solomon. Solomon was the byproduct of an illegitimate adulterous relationship. You got incest, adultery, interracial relationships. And it goes all the way down, and it gets to, and out of all those loins came Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, our Savior and God, is the byproduct of this sinful lineage that includes all of these things, including incest. And that's the truth of Romans 8.28, right? Jesus came in the world to save sinners. That's why He came. And He identified with sinners in His very lineage and genealogy. And Romans 8.28 kicked in. No matter how bad or evil it would get, God would override the evil, override the sin, and make good for it according to His plan. That's what God does. Because He's in control of everything. Total sovereign control. His plan goes on. That's why point number two is so important. God commanded procreation, and God is the one who opens the womb. God commanded procreation. We saw that in Genesis 1.21. It was a mandate given to the human race. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, dominate, represent me, reign as my vice regent on earth. That was reiterated again hundreds of years later under Noah. Be fruitful, fill the earth. It's reiterated once again in Psalm 127. Let's go ahead and look at it. This is a, a beautiful verse. It's about the family. Psalm 127. And it talks about what a treasure children are. Uh, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord is in control of the family, then you're going to have problems. Talking about the family. And in families, sometimes children come along, verse 3, but don't, don't fear. Don't inhibit the process. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. There it is. Children are a gift for the Lord, from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Not a fetus. Not an inconvenience. Not an unwanted pregnancy. It is a reward from God. Beautiful passage. A reward. God is the giver of life. That's why I put that second point in there. God commanded procreation. By the way, we're not, gonna, we're not in danger of overpopulating the earth. That's another major argument they use today. We need abortion because we've got overpopulation problems. They've even... That's even in China. You can only have so many children. That's not true. Practically speaking, we, could, we can fit the entire population of the United States of America right now comfortably in the state of Texas. Texas is big. We've got plenty of room. God commanded procreation. He hasn't rescinded that command. And He is the one that opens the womb. Because, you know, if you take on this mindset, this secular humanistic mindset that a pregnancy is simply the byproduct of hapless evolution and it's just a biological chance of a sperm and an egg happening to meet and that's all there is to it. Totally devoid of any 
a work of the divine creator, that, that perspective is wrong. Scripture is clear. God is the one in charge. He is the one that gives breath and life. He puts the very, His Spirit of life into every human being that has ever lived in this life. And even at the point of conception, He does that. God is the Creator. He's the one that gives life. The Old Testament over and over again says God opens the womb. He is the one that closes the womb as well. He is in charge. There are no mistakes, accidents, unwanted pregnancies. Every conception and pregnancy that happens, God knew about it. God orchestrated it. God was in charge. He was sovereignly in control. First Samuel chapter 1 is beautiful. Hannah, the woman of God, lived all of her life and she couldn't have one of the main things she wanted was a child. A child. And she's praying to God as she pours out her heart. And in First Samuel chapter 1 verse 5, it says she was prevented from having a child and becoming pregnant because God closed her womb. God did it. She knew that. Chapter 1, verse 11, she begins to pray to God. She pours out her heart. God, please open my womb. Be be gracious. You are the Creator. And in verse 15, it says, God heard her prayer. Beautiful. God heard her prayer. God was in charge. God opens the womb. He closes the womb. It's not just all biological. It's a very secular, deficient viewpoint. God is in charge. He's the Creator. He's the giver of life. Hannah prayed. God answered her prayer and she gave birth to a son. He became a prophet. Blessed, beautiful thing. I remember when I was teaching at a Christian high school down in Southern California years ago and there was a a professor at the Master's College who was going to join our team as an English teacher. He was now in his 40s. And him and his wife, her womb was closed. They've been married 21 years. They never had a child. They wanted a child, desperately been praying and praying and praying. And then I think it was on their 21st wedding anniversary, she felt a little sick. Um, I'm a little nauseous. I better go see the doctor. Maybe I've got a flu. No, you've got something bigger and cuter than the flu. Uh, she became pregnant. And they just, they couldn't believe it. They were humbled. 21 years, God opened their womb. And they just wept and wept with joy. God is in charge. Conception is an act of God. Let's go on to number three. Uh, babies are uniquely precious to God and He will avenge their death. Baby, uh, the baby in the womb is a person. That which is in the womb is a child. It is a son. It is a daughter. It was made in God's image. It is sacred. It will be protected by God. It is precious to God. And children, especially young children, are especially precious to God in a unique kind of a way. He will avenge them. He will defend them. I think of Jesus in Matthew 18 where He did this uh, with young children. Verse Chapter 18, verse 2, it says, Jesus called a child, a little child to Himself, as a visual aid. He stood the child in front of Him, probably put it on His knee, and said, Truly I say to all of you that were listening in the audience, unless you become converted like this child, this dear child, this precious child, this innocent child, Not a sinless child, but an innocent child. You shall enter the kingdom of God. You need to be humble. Whoever then humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus loved children, adored children. Whoever receives one such child as this in My name receives Me. But whoever causes one of these little ones, these little children who believe in Me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he'd been drowned in the depths of the sea and never been born. Woe unto those who make the laws of abortion, push them and defend them. That's what Jesus said. It goes on with Jesus' unique perspective of the sacredness and preciousness of children. Matthew 19 says this, Then some children were brought to Jesus 
so that he might lay hands on the children and pray for them. Luke, the parallel passage, says this. Some babies were being brought to Jesus. Brephos, same word, baby, that we saw in Luke 1, of a baby inside the womb. Babies were being brought to Jesus. Matthew 19.13, some of the children and babies were being brought to Jesus so that He would pray for them. And the twelve apostles rebuked all these parents. Get your babies out of here. They cry. They stink. They belong in the nursery. Jesus didn't go, yeah. No, Jesus rebuked the apostles. You knuckleheads. That's the McManus version. You knuckleheads. Let the children alone. Leave the babies alone and do not hinder them from coming to Me. I love babies. I love children. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Children, babies, infant, the unborn are precious to God. And He will avenge their death. That's Genesis chapter 4. Anytime blood is spilt on the ground, God is the avenger and judge. He will make it right. Exodus 23, verse 7. Uh, Let's go there and look at that one. Oh, um, actually, I'll just read it to you. Short phrase there. God gave this law, and He simply just says this, Do not kill the innocent. Do not kill the... Who is the innocent of all innocent among human beings? It's babies in the womb who are totally vulnerable, totally helpless, 100% responsible on others to care for them. And that's why God said right here in Exodus 23, it's amazing that God would have to say that. Do not kill the innocent. And if you do, they will not go without judgment. That's Luke 23. I mean, uh, Exodus 23. Do not kill the innocent. Why would God say that? Because God knows how vile the human heart and mind can be. That humans could go to the level where they would literally kill and murder the most vulnerable and precious group of people in society, and that is unborn babies. Do not kill the innocent. For I will not acquit the guilty. Here's an amazing passage that goes unnoticed about God's special concern and care for babies and children. Look at Jonah. That would be in the Minor Prophets just before the New Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Jonah, Micah, just before Micah. So you know the story of Jonah, the originally disobedient prophet, but then he does what God says and he goes around and Nineveh repents. All these pagans repent of their sin. And actually, Jonah's disappointed in their repentance and that God saves some of them. So he starts moaning and groaning and complaining and feeling sorry for himself. And then he uh, has a pet and it's a plant and he names it, I don't know, Elvira or whatever. And he's basking in the shade of this plant and then his plant dies and he starts weeping and crying over his plant, mourning the death of his plant. My Venus flytrap died. I don't know what he was doing. And God's watching this whole thing just in disbelief. God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? You're crying and weeping over a plant? Are you serious? And, And Jonah said, yeah, I have good reason to be angry even to the point of death. And then God said to Jonah, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. That was my plant, fella, said God. And then he says this in verse 11, And should I not have compassion on the Ninevites, those pagan sinners that you despise so much? I had compassion on them, and rightfully so, God says. Verse 11, And should I not have compassion on Nineveh and the city? The great city, and here's one of the reasons why God had compassion on Nineveh and spared it. It was a huge city. Had compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are some more than 120,000 
persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. You know what that is? That was a Hebrew idiom or a euphemism to speak of a young child, a baby. They don't know. They're just flopping and flailing around. And God said, man, I spared, if it, just the reason alone I spared the city of Nineveh is because there was 120,000 babies there. That's who I had compassion on. God has great compassion on children and babies. He will avenge their death. That's what Romans 12 says. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Let's go on to point number four. God created government to protect life. We've already addressed this issue, but I did want to read one verse, which is amazing. Exodus 20, verse 13. The NASB botches it. I'm just going to let you know that on this. Horrible translation. The NIV, excellent job. And the ESV, excellent job. On Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Or Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25. Listen to this. If two men are fighting and they actually bumped into and hit a pregnant woman, a woman with child, and the woman with child gives birth prematurely, yet there is no serious injury to the baby. The grammar is explicit in the Hebrew text. But there is no, so she has a baby prematurely, and that baby's vulnerable now. It could get hurt. But if there is no injury to the baby that was born prematurely in the scuffle, then the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands. Even if the baby wasn't hurt and was born prematurely, the husband who made it happen, he gets fined. But if the baby is hurt, God forbid the baby dies in that incident, they invoke Connor's Law, which we have here in America. What is that? Verse 23. But if there is serious injury to the baby, that's what it's talking about, you are to take life for life. There it is. If that baby died in that scenario... Whoever caused it to happen was to receive capital punishment to the full point of the law. Death. God's point of view is that which is, born, is in the womb is a baby. God created government to protect life. Yet our Supreme Court creates laws to do just the opposite. In 1973 with Roe versus Wade on January 22nd. Abominable since then. 49 million babies in America have been murdered, killed through abortion. 1.5 million every single year. And they give us all these reasons as to why abortion is okay. And the real reasons are, for the most part, now we've got a lot of history. We've got decades now to look at the statistics. And abortion isn't being enacted and protected and promoted uh, to preserve the life of the mother for the most part. Uh, it's not because of incest and rape. The number one reason is, is because it's a convenient form of birth control. That is the number one reason. In hindsight, decades later. Let's go on to number... Oh, actually, I just wanted to mention this to you, that uh, some of the reasons they also give, uh, they want to they make abortion law, and they have, and one of their main reasons was because they want to ensure safe abortions. Because if we don't have abortion as a law as safe, then women are going to subject themselves to unsafe methods. And they always use the... Example of a rusty coat hanger in the alley. That was what they always used as an illustration. But there are, just so you know, there are no safe abortions because it is totally unnatural. It's unnatural to the human body. And there's always a consequence to an abortion, regardless of how early on in the pregnancy. If it's not physical, and there are many physical vulnerabilities as a result of an abortion, but even worse than that, for years are the mental, emotional, psychological, and spiritual maladies and disorders that come as a result of any woman who has an abortion, and even the husbands or the men involved. As the guilt catches up with them. So there aren't any unsafe 
abortions. And another main reason uh, that people promote abortion today, or like Barbara Boxer, Senator of California, who is adamant about this, she's outspoken. She is. Uh, this is her platform. Uh, she is all pro-abortion uh, on the Senate floor in a debate that you can have access to as a person, a citizen of the state of California, in a debate with Rick Santorum. She said that a baby is not a baby. No, a fetus is not a person until the mother drives it home from the hospital. Sad. Uh, another main thing that she spouts is, well, a woman has a right. She has a constitutional right over her own body. Well, the problem with that is the baby inside the mother's womb is not the mother's body. The baby inside the womb is a totally 100% separate, independent being. And at the time of conception, that little baby inherited 46 chromosomes like you and I have, has all the DNA it needs uh, for the rest of its life. Uh, very soon after fertilization, it has its entire own self-sufficient bloodstream that's totally independent of the mother. And with more and more technology, we see that that baby is totally independent of its mother, kind of like a kangaroo baby you know, that can actually move around before it's born with total independence. So that baby is not the woman's body. And even if they want to argue that from a biblical point of view, uh, the Bible says you are not, your body is not your own. You belong to God your Creator. That's Ezekiel 18, right? Every soul is mine. Every body is mine. They are accountable to me. Our life is not our own. Our physical life is not our own. We belong to our Creator whether you're a Christian or not. And if you are a Christian, then your body doesn't belong to you because the Holy Spirit owns your body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Honor God with your body, says Paul in 1 Corinthians. And if you're a Christian and you're married, or actually even if you're not a Christian and you're married as a woman, your body belongs to your husband, says 1 Corinthians 7. Your body is not your own. It belongs to him and vice versa. It's mutual. Uh, the Bible says to the husband, your body is not your own. It belongs to your wife. So that's the biblical point of view on whose body is whose. Number five, abortion is a sin. Bottom line, that's all there is to it. Hard for some people to say that and admit it, even Christians. It's God's point of view. It's a sin. It's not the unpardonable sin or unforgivable sin. Uh, if God can forgive the Apostle Paul, who was once a Christian killer, God can forgive anybody that's had an abortion. And that's what God is in the business of doing. Seeking out and saving sinners. That's why He came. That is the good news. That is the Gospel. Abortion is a sin. Exodus 20, verse 13, the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not kill. Literally what it means is thou shalt not murder. And taking an innocent life of a baby in the womb is an act of murder. Which takes us to point number six. There is forgiveness and healing only in Jesus Christ. Like I said, the torment that goes on in some women. Many women will keep it private their whole life. They won't tell anybody. Out of shame, out of guilt, out of being haunted by their conscience, holding it in, there's no relief. Unless you go to the Lord Jesus Christ confessing your sin and asking for healing and forgiveness, there won't be any resolution in this life. There won't be healing. Not just physical healing, emotional, spiritual, mental, psychological. And maybe even if you ask for that, you won't have it to your satisfaction in this life. You'll only get that in heaven in your new body, in your perfect relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is our hope. That's the hope we need to extend to people and sinners. And so abortion, it's not the unpardonable sin. It is a forgivable sin. It's a heinous sin. But all sin is unrighteousness. Jesus came to die for sin. Jesus got executed on the cross willingly for all sin, including the sin of abortion. He can absorb the wrath of God, give total forgiveness to anybody who cries out to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and He will save you them and rescue them and adopt them into His family to be a child or daughter of God forever. That is the good, blessed news of Jesus Christ and the Gospel. And with that, I want to read the great work of Jesus Christ summarized so 
well by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. Here's what Jesus came to do. He came to live a perfect life as the God-man. He came to willingly die and absorb God's wrath on behalf of sinners. And He did it at the cross. And He guaranteed it by His resurrection from the dead and sending on high. And there He reigns over all of us. For in Jesus Christ, verse 9, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, in Christ, you have been made complete if you're a Christian. You've been made complete even if you've had an abortion. Even if you've had a divorce. It doesn't matter. If you become a Christian, you are now complete in Christ. Well, I don't feel complete. Neither do I. That is, that's by faith. Lord Jesus, I am complete in You. Even though everything else around me is falling apart. It's the great hope for a Christian. He, you are complete in Christ. Total forgiveness. He is the head over all. Overall, rule and authority in Christ. You were also circumcised, spiritually speaking, with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh. Your old self was crucified. Verse 12, having been buried with Jesus Christ in baptism in which you were also raised up through Jesus Christ spiritually because you believed in His death and resurrection on your behalf. You've been raised up to newness of life in Jesus Christ by faith. There it is. It is by faith in His work. All of Him, none of me through faith in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgression, in your, when you were dead in your transgressions and the circumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven all of your transgressions. Verse 14, here's the crescendo. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting as we live our life, we just amass and accumulate every sin that has ever been committed that deserves the penalty of death before God. So we have this massive certificate that goes, should go before God the judge. I am guilty. I deserve death. If you believe in Christ and the good news, Jesus Christ takes that certificate of your sin and your guilt and doesn't present it to God as judge. He crucifies it to the cross. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and our sin and which was hostile to us, condemning us to death, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The good news of Jesus and Christianity. Only in Jesus Christ is there forgiveness and healing. Let's thank God for that great truth as we pray to Him. Bow with me, if you will. Father, thank You for just being a great God. Once again, being a Savior as we're reminded in Scripture. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your plan. Conceived in the eternity past to come down here and to seek and to save sinners. And uh, there's no sin that is greater than the grace that You extend. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more because You're such a great God. Thank You for that great truth. God, I pray for anybody in this congregation who, where this issue is a sensitive and personal topic of abortion. If they're a believer, You continue to heal and preserve them, protect them and watch over their thinking and their emotions and their thought life continually sanctifying them. And if there are those that we know personally who have had to contend with this issue, that we can minister and speak with wisdom and be prayerful on their behalf and continue to give the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the solution by which You are glorified. We thank You so much for that great truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org 
or call us at 650-630-0009.